Welcome to The Bread Project. Bread is the classic carbohydrate of civilization and the spiritual metaphor for the richness of our human experience on Earth. Yet the breads we buy in the modern supermarket are only a superficial impersonation of the breads of bygone days. Indeed, the bread you put in your shopping cart or buy from a local baker might be making you sick in ways you never even suspected. So what happened? And what needs to happen next? In The Bread Project, we're asking the question, in an age in which every carbohydrate is positioned as pure dietary evil, where chemical contamination of our food is endemic, and in which our food systems are industrialized beyond all natural reason, is there really a redemption story for bread? I'm Melody Patterson Meta, and, and this is Reinventing the Supermarket. Today, I'm welcoming top neurologist and New York Times best-selling author, Dr. David Perlmutter. Dr. Perlmutter's groundbreaking book, Grain Brain, introduced many of us to the cutting-edge science around gut bacteria and just how much our lives depend on them. This book is essential reading for people who don't want to spend their last years suffering with dementia, diabetes, cardiovascular disease, and other degenerative chronic inflammatory conditions. Today we're going to be discussing the role of gut microbes in our health and especially relative to those chronic diseases which have reached epidemic proportions in our society. We'll also be discussing the gluten-free trend and the importance of glycemic index, especially as they relate to grains and breads. And if you're a bit depressed or in a bad mood, we'll have you asking if it's possibly that loaf of bread in the kitchen that's really at the root of the problem. Importantly, we'll be talking about fibre, and in particular, the kinds of fibre found in commercial grains and breads, and whether it's the same fibre we need if we want a healthy gut biome. So here we go, my recent discussion with Dr. David Perlmutter, the degenerative disease epidemic, the gluten-free trend, the fibre narrative, and can we have bread in our lives and still maintain a healthy gut and reduce our chances of long-term chronic inflammatory disease? In this episode called The Gut-Brain Connection. Dr. David Perlmutter, thank you so much for joining me. Melody, it is my pleasure. I'm so interested in the work that you do as a, as a neurologist and I'm very interested in the uh, certainly the information that you've brought to a much wider audience about the this gut brain axis and I want to try and get a little bit of a, an overview of the importance of the gut and the brain relative to the diet before we jump in and see if we can connect that through to the issues of bread and the breads that people are eating and buying in the supermarket. Well, that's a great lead in. And, and let me just say that, you know, this notion of connecting things in the gut to things going on in the brain is relatively new. I mean, up until really quite recently, medicine and healthcare have been practiced with a kind of what we call reductionist mentality, meaning that the body was reduced to its, its parts. You know, the heart was the pump, the lungs, the bellows, 
and the brain was the laptop computer sitting up on your shoulders and you know it was really a notion that each of these individual parts sort of existed in their own domain and did their thing and didn't really communicate and we now recognize that the entire body is fully integrated and that the brain not only in terms of its moment-to-moment -moment functionality but even in terms of its long-term resistance to disease is fundamentally influenced by an array of events that occur in the gut. So the gut-brain connection now is really the forefront of understanding how the brain works, recognizing that all kinds of chemical messengers, physical uh, connections, bacterial issues that we'll talk about are uh, going on in the gut and relating moment to moment in terms of how is the brain working as well as how healthy will the brain be uh, years from now. And as we have this, this uh, discussion, we, we really very quickly are able to embrace the notion that one of the most powerful influential factors uh, that uh, we talk about as it relates to gut health is of course nutrition, the foods that we choose to eat and frankly the foods that we rationalize avoiding. Because so much of what goes on in the gut obviously deals with digestion and is uh, profoundly influenced by our food choices day to day, which unfortunately vary uh, depending on which way the wind blows based upon what we're told is the right choice in food versus the wrong choice. You know, for the past three decades, we've been told to fear fat, for example, that fat consumption would lead to something horrendous happening like our children will be born naked or who knows what. It's so true. Uh, but, that's, but that said, we suddenly have seen uh, in Western cultures around the globe this dramatic turnaround where fat is once again embraced, uh, looked upon as being a healthful choice in terms of food. So it really you know, crystallizes this, this idea that our, our choices are so influenced by media and influenced by ideas that serve other people in terms of their long-term goals, uh, but may not be based upon science. Right, and in fact, the um, world of nutrition science is just going through tectonic shifts at the moment, as we realize that a lot of the things that we were told for the last 50 or 60 years about health are wrong. In fact, it's turning out to be quite the opposite. Well, you know, 50 to 60 years is not even a blink uh, in terms of the history of, of our existence on this planet and the, our history of the foods that we've consumed. Uh, it is less than the blink of an eye. And, uh, and that said, you know, there is what has been called the paleo movement, where people are trying to emulate uh, the diet of our paleolithic ancestors. And, you know, at first blush, it's not a bad idea because our genome, our 23,000 genes that we inherited from uh, our parents as well as all of our ancestors, uh, exists in direct communication with an epigenetic influence, which is our food choices. So our genome, our gene expression is changed moment to moment by a variety of environmental factors, most of which are food related. So, you know, our gene, uh, genome has gotten to where it is today in 2016 based upon this intimate relationship that it has developed over 2.4 million years with our food choices. Now, suddenly, 30 years ago, 
somebody says, uh, well, no, here's what you should be eating. People do that, and look what happened. Look at the rates of diabetes, of coronary artery disease, of cancer, of autoimmune conditions that have virtually exploded around the yes. world. Now, degenerative conditions are the, are the world's leading cause of a disability surpassing uh, infectious disease for the first time in history. That morbidity and mortality is more influenced by degenerative, chronic degenerative inflammatory conditions than it is by infectious disease. And that has never been the case in the entire time that we've walked this planet. And those diseases are directly related to our food choices. So if I had gone to a neurologist, say a decade ago, diet was probably not going to be very high on the agenda for treatment. Is you that could right? go to a neurologist today and it would still not be high on the agenda or the treatment. So this is very, very cutting edge stuff. Well, it's cutting edge and it's still unfortunately very rejected by mainstream that our food choices have a role to play in our health. You know, when you take your dog to the vet and the dog is sick, the first question the vet's going to ask you is what are you feeding your dog, right? Yep. No matter what the problem is, what are you feeding your dog? Uh, but we just, and you know, if you want to have a, a healthy uh, trees in your, in your garden, you feed them good nutrients. If you want to raise healthy livestock, you're very careful what you feed them. And if you're in the business of growing uh, cattle or chickens, you are intimately involved with what you're feeding those animals so that they'll survive and grow and be healthy. But for some reason, uh, the owner's manual as it relates to human beings got dropped and it's not online. So people don't know what to do and they're at the, the mercy of television commercials telling them what they should and shouldn't eat. And, you know, I, I'm a strong believer that that is uh, absolutely related in a, to a major degree in terms of why we are as unhealthy as we are. I couldn't agree with you more. I have to add to that, I think, that the market for um, the kinds of processed foods that are being advertised on television and have been for decades and decades now really was created in a very large way by some of this bad information that came out prompting everybody to go to a very high carb, high refined carb diet with a very low fat. And that gave manufacturers the opportunity to come in and start messing with original foods, taking out the fat, pumping in more sugar to replace uh, the taste that was removed with the fat. And it gave them a reason to exist. And actually, a lot of them aren't going to be happy with the return to natural foods because they are struggling to understand their role in the world <laughs> as people start to choose healthier and healthier, more traditional and natural choices. I want to ask you, what is going on in the gut that is influencing the brain so much? Well, there are so many uh, issues that are gut-related that influence the brain. I mean, first of all, our so-called neurotransmitters, dopamine, serotonin, norepinephrine, etc., that you know are the focus of drug companies to manipulate them to make us feel better, those are manufactured by and large in the gut. 90% of the feel-good chemical serotonin that has a very important role to play in, in how the brain works is manufactured in the gut. Now beyond that, perhaps more importantly as it relates to health and therefore disease, we understand that our most feared neurodegenerative conditions 
like Alzheimer's, MS, and Parkinson's, for example, and even ADHD and autism, are at their core inflammatory conditions. They are diseases of the brain uh, for which inflammation plays an important role. Now, I bring it up because inflammation is regulated in the gut. The, the gut lining has a huge role to play in setting what is called the set point of inflammation. And the maintenance of the lining of the gut is a job of the gut bacteria. So this insinuates the gut bacteria into a pivotal con, uh, role in terms of regulating the leakiness or the integrity of the gut lining because that controls inflammation. I just, just want to jump brain. in there and say to you, sorry to interrupt you, I just want to jump in and say that's very big news. The, if the gut is controlling inflammation, it's so important that we we all as a society stop and look at the fact that many of the the large chronic disease issues that we're facing as a civilization are called the diseases of civilization and they are inflammatory diseases right and that includes alzheimer's parkinson's diabetes cancer coronary artery disease uh, skin disorders like psoriasis arthritic issues as well. Any inflammatory condition is powerfully influenced by the permeability or integrity of the gut lining, and that is maintained by healthy gut bacteria. When we change uh, the gut bacteria, when we alter the, the gut bacteria by taking antibiotics or by taking acid-blocking drugs, for example, called proton pump inhibitors, then we open the door to increasing risk for things uh, like I mentioned. So when we see that uh, there's a substantial increased risk of, of having a heart attack uh, in people taking these acid-blocking drugs, uh, and that the risk of death from that heart attack is doubled, uh, and then peer-reviewed literature telling us that the reason this is happening is because of changes in the gut bacteria, we have to wonder why these drugs are sold over the counter and people take them for years and years. Why is it that in so many countries, even to this day, antibiotics are available without a prescription and people end up yes. taking them whenever they have a, a sore throat or a sniffle? Antibiotics impart a lifelong change onto the gut bacteria, damaging the gut bacteria for the rest of a person's life. That paves the way for immune issues and paves the way for inflammatory issues as well. The work with gut bacteria that's been coming out over the last few years is some of the most exciting scientific work ever, I think. It could change the entire landscape, in my opinion, when it comes to our health, just understanding that more clearly. I guess we're still in the early days of that, but what's influencing most, do you think, the health, other than antibiotic consumption, of course, the health of the bacteria in our guts? Food. Number one is food. And uh, on the one hand, it's a sobering message when we recognize that the food choices that people are making are so inappropriate and are wreaking havoc on the gut bacteria. But the empowering part of the story is that with uh, appropriate food choices, we can rehab the gut bacteria and pave the way for better health. So food that contains lots of prebiotic fiber, that's a unique type of fiber that will nurture the gut bacteria found in things like Jerusalem artichoke, dandelion greens, onions, garlics, leeks, uh, artichoke, 
Um, those types of foods are rich in what is called prebiotic fiber, as well as fermented foods that are teeming with lactobacilli. And these are foods like uh, kimchi, uh, fermented vegetables, fermented uh, meats and fish, uh, kombucha, uh, yogurt, that's cultured yogurt, um, sauerkraut. These are foods that naturally contain healthful levels of good bacteria. But, you know, the, the, the standard Western diet these days is wreaking havoc, havoc on the, the balance of the bacteria within the gut and favoring the overgrowth of bacteria that tend to lead to things like inflammation, immune uh, disruption, and even obesity. Yes, um, actually, obviously, the, uh, the supermarket world is filled with manufacturers who are busy pumping probiotics now into their products in the hope that this will attract shoppers and consumers who are interested in gut health. But the whole issue of the prebiotic fiber is one that still, I think, needs some, um, some more unpacking for people out there. I think I'd like to connect this at this moment through to the idea of bread, because bread is, as a product on supermarket shelves, is sold based on fiber and based on the notion of the healthy whole grain, which is the little name, the little soundbite that has been given to the idea of grains in the diet. So I guess you have some pretty strong thoughts about fiber, the good fiber versus the fiber that's in specifically in supermarket breads and this notion of healthy whole grains. Well, it was a wonderful uh, way of marketing and you got to give credit where credit is due to whatever, uh, you know, geniuses came up with that notion, but it is it's completely absurd. I mean, uh, when you recognize that um, uh, the grains in bread, number one, are anything but whole grains. Number two are gluten-containing, which is uh, hugely threatening to the integrity of the gut lining. And number three, these foods are oftentimes huge sources of carbohydrate, uh, broken down into sugar, which damages the gut, which paves the way for diabetes, opens the door to obesity. Nothing could be worse in terms of a, a food. Um, so, you know, bread is, uh, is a dangerous food on multiple counts. Now, I don't mean to castigate all grains. There are certainly some very healthful grains that are out there, for example, like whole grain rice. Uh, quinoa is not by definition a grain, but it's off oftentimes uh, added into the grain category. It's not specifically a seed of, a, of grass, but that said. And there, yep. so there are various uh, gluten-free grains that are out there that when consumed uh, in a reasonable amount so you're not getting a huge carbohydrate load are not necessarily threatening and may in fact be embraced. Uh, corn is a grain. Unfortunately, uh, a lot of the corn uh, in Western cultures is now genetically modified and therefore sprayed with an herbicide called glyphosate, the active ingredient in Roundup. And uh, oddly enough, just today I interviewed Dr. Stephanie Seneff from uh, Massachusetts Institute of Technology, who's done... She's really, wonderful. <laughs> yeah, she's done so much work in showing how damaging and dangerous this chemical glyphosate is. So that would be a, a powerful reason to avoid corn, because when you spray foods with glyphosate, you eat glyphosate, and that further damages the gut bacteria. I would add that uh, glyphosate is now being obviously used extensively on 
wheat, not on the um, GMO wheat, but on non-GMO wheat. So people can actually go into a supermarket and see bread that's labeled non-GMO. And that wheat will have potentially been drenched in glyphosate in a process that's, right. that's even so more damaging to their gut, at, at, particularly since glyphosate is an antibiotic. That's right. It's an antibiotic. It, it's, uh, uh, Monsanto has the patent on glyphosate as an antibiotic, meaning uh, that it will uh, kill bacteria. Well, why would that matter for you and me? Well, because we are 10 times more bacteria than we are human cells. That's why it matters to us. I'd like to circle back to the notion of gluten and just understand where you stand on gluten. Are you suggesting that all humans should preferably have a gluten-free diet or a nearly gluten-free diet? Uh, yes, and I, I'm not you know, trying to be cavalier and making a statement like that, uh, but uh, you know, the, the scientific research demonstrates uh, through really an elegant pathway that was described by Dr. Alessio Fasano at Harvard, that uh, when gluten is consumed, it leads to increased permeability or leakiness of the gut in all human beings. Now, you know, I've talked with Dr. Fasano, actually he and I were last together right there in Australia uh, last month. I talked to him about this and he says, well, it doesn't mean everybody should avoid it because not everybody's gluten sensitive. But, you know, for me, we've got to offload all the straws off the camel's back. And if here's one thing that can enhance the leakiness of the gut, then by all means, we should get rid of it. Right. So it's about the total toxic load that we're carrying in our life and across the whole diet. That's right. So it's the, uh, you know, gluten uh, in the diet, as well as the chlorine in the drinking water, uh, the medications a person might be taking, stress uh, also changes the gut bacteria. So there are a variety of factors that we have to look at that are involved here, that being one of them. Well, now, I've heard you talk in other interviews with you that I've listened to, and certainly in your superb books, about fermented foods and the importance of consume. And you've just spoken to me, obviously, a little bit about fermented foods. Now, the traditional bread was a fermented food. And currently, the bread that people buy in supermarkets, regardless of what grains are in it, and knowing that they're extremely refined grains, highly processed. But that traditional bread was fermented. It was fermented more than once. And uh, my question to you, I guess, is how do you feel about properly produced traditional breads that go through all of the traditional fermentation, which uh, in some respects at, at least breaks down gluten? Uh, versus the kind of breads, of course, that we're buying in the supermarket today, which go through a chemical rising process. They don't have a real fermentation process. That's right. And the fermentation process that they do undergo is actually dramatically foreshortened. Um, so, uh, you know, it, uh, it's very difficult for bread to rise if it doesn't have gluten in it. Gluten is the stickiness uh, the sticky stuff, the glue, where the word comes from, uh, that allows bread to form because it traps the, uh, you know, the bubbles of carbon dioxide that are given off during the actual process of fermentation. So it's, it's challenging to make, uh, to make bread without that sticky chemical, although there has been some recent uh, significant uh, 
innovation in the notion of you know looking at other sources, non-gluten sources uh, that can be sticky and can actually uh, allow the process to take place. But uh, you know, there to be clear, while bread does rise through the process of fermentation, uh, it doesn't therefore gain the attributes of what we traditionally call fermented foods. We like fermented foods, the kimchi, kombucha, sauerkraut, yogurt, etc., because they contain viable bacteria, good levels of healthy bacteria that tend to inoculate our gut. So we consume these foods and recommend consumption of these foods because they're loaded with good bacteria. Bread doesn't have that. You know, once it rises, then it's baked at 450 degrees for who knows how long. And yes. uh, nothing viable uh, is maintained, nor could it, or it wouldn't be able to be uh, have a long shelf life and be shipped the way it is, etc. So, yes, it's a fermented food by definition, but it doesn't mean it still has viable organisms. Well, now, it's my guess that if we were to project out from this moment, say 10 years in the future, and people are perhaps largely eating a healthy diet, certainly if I look at the trends as a marketer and a brand strategist, I can see that we have a phenomenal trend towards shoppers coming in and starting to look for healthier choices. But I'm going to guess that bread is still going to be on the supermarket shelf 10 years from now. It may be a slightly or a mu even a much healthier uh, choice. The question I would ask of you is what would you advise in terms of what that bread should look like and in terms of the usage patterns that people who will keep bread in their life, what, the, what they should be considering? Well, as I mentioned, I think that uh, we are seeing uh, the development of gluten-free breads that may be palatable and I think may uh, satisfy those people who just need to have uh, their bread. But, you know, you have to understand that uh, uh, gluten-free as a category, gluten-free sales are growing uh, in double digits, uh, even in even the past five years, averaging a 34% uh, growth Huge. Uh, year to year over the past five years, um, and projected to, to grow 19.2% uh, moving forward uh, by the year uh, 2019. Uh, so, you know, we're, we're projecting or seeing projections rather that uh, by the year 2019, which is three years away, that this will be an over a $2 billion um, uh, industry, gluten-free. So, but that said, so having said, I, I think we're going to see more and more in the development because people just love their, uh, their bread. We'll see more and more gluten-free breads uh, arriving on the scene. You know, we're already, already seeing uh, uh, based upon rice, but, you know, they, they aren't necessarily that palatable. But we see a gluten-free flour being used for um, uh, for pizza, uh, etc. But and so there, you know, there are quite a few of them out there. I've actually tasted a few of them, and they're not. Uh, some of them aren't too bad. But even beyond that, though, I think it's important to understand that despite the fact that it's gluten-free, it doesn't necessarily give you, um, you know, a carte blanche to go ahead and start eating all these foods that you want because, um, you know, again, this is a very concentrated, powerful source of carbohydrates in the diet. Uh, so, you know, I, I think even though it's gluten-free, you know, plenty of items on the gluten-free aisle in the grocery store that will 
that'll kill you. you know? That's right. They're really the cakes are. and the, the pastas, etc. You know, this is a good way of raising your blood sugar, of increasing your risk for heart disease and diabetes and Alzheimer's. Right. So if the shopper comes along and they are looking at a loaf of bread on the supermarket and the loaf of bread is is uh, certified organic, for instance, which means hopefully it doesn't have any glyphosate contamination in it and say it's uh, gluten-free and made from a range of some of the lovely new grains you mentioned quinoa is one of the grains we're seeing used more and more that doesn't necessarily mean this quinoa organic gluten-free bread is a safe option for them to include in their diet constantly or even on a highly regular basis you're suggesting a more um uh, a sort of occasional usage pattern would be I the do. safest. And I think, you know, your typical slice of bread has about 71 grams of carbs, and that's a lot of carbs. I mean, I typically recommend about somewhere in the neighborhood of 70 to 80 grams of carbs in the diet per day. That's one slice of bread. It also has a, a very high uh, glycemic index. Uh, whole wheat bread has a glycemic index of about 70, and that's higher than many candy bars, meaning um, how it will raise your blood sugar, but not just how high is the blood sugar raised, but also for how long. So uh, I think when we look at foods, not just in terms of gluten-free or not, but in terms of their glycemic index, which I think is really important in terms of keeping you uh, on a low glycemic index diet that's favorable for not developing diabetes, then again, it's another strike against bread. And I'm not certainly suggesting that people therefore eat candy bars because they may have a lower glycemic index. But you know, in, in the book I wrote, Grain Brain, uh, I emphasized uh, the importance of glycemic index. And I think more and more uh, we are seeing uh, that information coming into the public arena, allowing people to uh, make better food choices based upon their glycemic index, not just how much sugar, protein, and fat, and carbohydrate they contain. I really think that it's worth always repeating to people that a slice of bread is so high in terms of its glycemic index, that is the basically the sugar impact that it's having on your body and on your gut, that <clears throat> excuse me, that it it's actually worse than sitting and eating table sugar straight off the spoon. Uh, it is. I mean, uh, you, I think the word you used that I thought was really good is, is sugar impact. So while bread contains sugar, though uh, its effect upon blood sugar is really much more substantial than the sugar that it contains because it persistently elevates the blood sugar. It, it causes a protracted elevation of blood sugar by virtue of its high glycemic index. And so it's that constant high elevation of blood sugar as the uh, carbohydrates are being broken down, keeping the blood sugar elevated, that keeps the body uh, continuing to secrete insulin and really having to deal with bread on a longer basis. And you know, ultimately, uh, the body gets tired of its insulin and becomes what we call insulin resistant, and that's the harbinger for future diabetes. Why am I all over diabetes? Because if you're diabetic, you've quadrupled your risk for Alzheimer's disease. So I which is phenomenal, by the way. That's a very scary statistic. Um, I just want to say, 
What about milling? I know that we're in fact going to be talking a little bit more about milling on this series of podcasts, but the traditional milling style created a much lower glycemic index style of bread than the highly refined flours that are used today. Do you think that, uh, where, do you, where do you stand on that? Do you think that the purchasing, if you're purchasing bread, that at least try and find one that is using an old fashioned traditional milling method like stone ground flour? Well, I, I would say that, you know, one of the reasons that, um, uh, that, that whole grain breads have such a high glycemic index is because, in fact, they're, uh, they aren't as milled and therefore the carbs are tied up more in, in the fiber and, will con- and, and therefore, as they are broken down, um, will, will be more available. We know that um, uh, heat, for example, can also raise a food's glycemic index because it makes sugar more available. Uh, we know that, for example, carrots have a a raw carrot has a really low glycemic index at 20, but when they're cooked, then that glycemic index more than doubles because that sugar is more readily available. So it doesn't, um, you know, the, the highly processed foods can have a really high glycemic index. I mean, cornflakes, very highly processed way of making, of, of treating corn, has a glycemic index of 85. Uh, mashed potatoes have a uh, uh, a glycemic index of 95, as opposed to a fairly low glycemic index of eating a baked potato. So, um, uh, you know, I, I think your point is well taken that the, the how a food is is treated, um, and and you know even beyond that plays a role. But even beyond that, how a food is even delivered. Uh, for example, um, it, you know, people like to drink orange juice, and orange juice. Uh, you know, eating an orange is a far different experience for your body in terms of sugar than, than consuming a glass of orange juice. When you eat an orange, you're eating a lot of good fiber that tends to slow the sugar release and modify the sugar release as opposed to drinking a 12-ounce glass of orange juice, which contains 36 grams of sugar. That's nine teaspoons of sugar in a glass of healthy vitamin C orange juice that's supposed to make you conquer the world. So, I mean, it's really time that we rewrite these books a little bit about what really makes for healthful food. I just want to land a couple of important points here and and cover them off before we finish up. The first one is the point that you are saying that the fibers that we are getting in bread, the fiber that we get in bread, is not necessarily the prebiotic fiber that assists in our gut health and doesn't necessarily make bread a good choice, in t- regardless of the grain perhaps, uh, doesn't necessarily make bread a good choice when it comes to gut health, just based on fibers alone. I'd say that, you know, by and large, for me, uh, there's no way to make a silk purse out of a sow's ear, meaning... Um, I just don't know how you're going to make bread a good food. You know, as I mentioned, there are some gluten-free breads that can be consumed in small amounts, but then you're still having to deal with um, the, the carbohydrate load and the glycemic index, even though it's gluten-free. Uh, and, and beyond that, the notion that even whole grain bread, because it does contain some fiber, uh, might be a good source of prebiotics is really not true. I mean. The, the prebiotics come from uh, 
uh, chicory root, dandelion root, a burdock root, a certain fruits like apples and bananas, onions, leeks, garlic, a Jerusalem artichoke, uh, asparagus, uh, raw apple cider, for example. But not from uh, even, grains. Yeah, and even uh, human mother's milk is, it has high levels of uh, what are called uh, galactosaccharides. So, uh, but not found in, in bread and uh, you know, not really found in grain. So there's no argument in favor of, grain, of eating bread from the, the angle of it's a good source of fiber. That's not going to work. That's so important for us to understand clearly. So the healthy whole grain story needs to go away because that's not true. Yes, and again, as you and I started off uh, with our interview, um, it was a wonderful marketing idea because people were thinking grain, fiber, fiber, my doctor said, is good. And this came at a time when we knew that, you know, uh, when people were panicked because they couldn't have terrible high-fat foods like avocado and salmon. Uh, but, you know, now that the, the tables have been turned, quite literally, and we're realizing that, uh, you know, People think we've always eaten bread, that we've eaten bread throughout recorded history. Well, history went back a long time before it was recorded. And people say, well, gosh, it was even in the Bible. When was the Bible written? I don't know, but probably around 2,000 years ago, if it's 2016 right now. So maybe a little bit, uh, a little bit less than 2,000 years ago. Uh, that doesn't even compare to the amount of time we've lived on this planet. So for more than 99% of our planet, we were gluten-free, basically. We didn't eat bread. Uh, and we ate what we would either kill or we would find as we were hunter-gatherers. And, you know, how wonderful for all of your listeners in Australia to have uh, Chef uh, Pete Evans, who has been so advoca uh, strongly advocating the paleo approach. He's a hero. He's right. Yeah, he's a hero of mine. I, I had dinner with him uh, two weeks ago at his home in Australia and he he walks the talk and he does so, uh, we actually gave a presentation. Uh, he does so because it's exactly the way we should be eating and so I applaud him for that. Yeah, I, I love him, I think he's doing a fantastic job, I totally agree. The other point I just want to land on before we finish is just reinforcing this notion that when you are eating refined grains and refined, very refined starches, such as are found in most breads most of the time, you are consuming basically a form of sugar. The starch itself is going to become sugar or have a sugar impact in your gut. And that is damaging your gut biome. It's damaging the bacteria in your gut. And that has an impact on your health, it opens you up to diseases, and it has an impact on your, even your mood. Is that right? That's right. Uh, you're exactly right. So what incredible science this is that we had no clue about just five years ago, that our gut bacteria are fundamentally involved in regulating our mood. As I mentioned earlier, even the neurotransmitters. I mean, serotonin coming from the gut. You think of all of the drugs that have been developed to increase availability of serotonin over the years, starting with Prozac. And uh, really, it's a gut-related neurotransmitter, and the gut bacteria play a huge role in making that a neurochemical. So that said, when we recognize that foods can either favorably or disfavorably affect gut bacteria in that regard, 
You look upon things like bread and other sources of carbohydrates and sugars uh, and recognize that they are not in your interest in terms of mood, in terms of memory, in terms of anxiety, uh, in terms of risk for Alzheimer's. And, you know, this may have seemed like a stretch when uh, Grain Brain was published, but it's now been so vitally supported globally. So uh, it's a very exciting time for me as a brain specialist, as a neurologist, to have this information be so embraced. It's so important, and I, I just want to thank you in terms of what you're bringing to humankind with your books and making available some of this very cutting-edge information so that we can start to change what we're doing and adapt what we're doing because we really have been operating in the dark as a society when it comes to our nutrition, I think particularly for the last century or so. So thank you very much for your your impact that you're having out there and, Melody, and your time. I always uh, am appreciative for any venue that will allow me just to talk about what I think is really important and certainly that goes for you as well. I'm, I'm very appreciative. Well, all of the information about your books will be on this page, uh, the page for this podcast, and I encourage everybody to get a hold of them and to read them. In fact, read them more than once and absorb the information that's in there. Dr. David Perlmutter, I want to thank you so much for being here and having this discussion with me. It's very Absolutely much appreciated. My thank you for having me today. I'm Melody Patterson Meta. I'm Melody and this Patterson Meta. Is reinventing and the this supermarket. Is reinventing the supermarket. <laughs>